And last uh, week um, of the sermon by highlighting the importance of covenants. We took stock of how the pilgrim mothers and fathers offered as a guarantee to their backers that uh, they were going to do everything that they promised to do in the new world by the fact that they had covenanted together before God to do what they had pledged to do in coming here. And so when their backers asked, how do we know you're going to do this? They, in part, answered, you know we're going to do it because we covenanted together before God to do these things. One of the things they covenanted together to do was by God's grace be used by him in order to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and the power and blessing of the gospel. They had a great hope and an inward zeal for laying some good foundation or at least to make some way thereunto for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world. And we closed that message last week by demonstrating that they actively fulfilled that covenant promise and offered as evidence that they did that, that when they were caught in the grip of a crippling drought, they set aside as a people a day of prayer and fasting in which they openly and they publicly asked Almighty God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver them from the dry, plant-killing heat, and to bring them rain, a prayer which God answered, and which they then publicly acknowledged with the occasion that we mark today as Thanksgiving, using that opportunity to show to the Native Americans around them their gratitude for God and to God, to the God who hears and answers prayer. And they did that with the hope and prayer that their fellow men and women might escape the worship of the creature and the creation, a religion that leads to death, and find the creator whose gospel brings light and life. So they offered that as evidence. What, what are we going to do? We're going there to propagate the gospel. What did we do when we got there? When we had this occasion, we used this occasion in an attempt to propagate the gospel. We live in a very skeptical age, and rightfully so. The idea of keeping one's word, of making a promise and sticking to it, of abiding by a covenant made before God or man is really a, a rather rare thing. Our confession of faith, drawing upon the teaching of God's word, has several very important things to say about oath-taking or entering into a covenant or making a promise. I'm not going to quote them all, but just share a few lines here and there from the 22nd chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is entitled, Of Lawful Oaths and Vows. In the first paragraph, it says this, A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein, upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness that he 
to witness what he asserts or promises, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. <coughs> Excuse me, that is a very serious statement. And it really should be considered by all of us as we think about making promises and entering into covenants together. In the third paragraph, it says this, whosoever takes an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. So if I'm going to make a promise to someone, I want to only promise what I am sure is truly my intention and nothing less. Of course, it also refers to if you're bearing witness to something in a court trial, for example, and you're saying this is what I saw, you only want to avouch to the truth there as well. In the fourth paragraph, it says this, an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the word without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful, being taken, it binds performance. Although to a man's own hurt, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels, people who have departed from the faith or who no longer or who never believed. Even if you make that promise to them, you're still bound to keep what you have, what you've promised. And it's interesting, it says without equivocation. So uh, probably the simplest way to illustrate that is when you make, when you enter into a covenant in the name of the Lord, you don't have any finger crossing behind your back. You know, where you're saying, this is what I'm promising, but this is what I mean. And it's something less than what you're promising. None of that. That is not appropriate to the, the biblical bringing of an oath. Now, all of this, and, and there's more to it, they're, they're sobering words. And as I said, they ought to be reviewed, I think, by every believer regularly. And particularly before entering into a covenant like marriage, which is a lifetime commitment. And these statements really represent the witness of the scriptures. Scriptures like Deuteronomy 10.20, where the Lord says to his people, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, and you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. When you make that promise, whatever that promise is, whether it's the promise you make as husband and wife, whether it's the promises you make here when you bring your children forward for baptism and your intentions to, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you do that with the, the faith and confidence in mind that the Lord is one who holds us to the truth and who will deal with us according to the truth. He is a God of judgment, and he will hold us to that judgment, and he's a God of righteousness. And with him, there's none of this equivocation, none of this promising one thing, but really meaning another. And that's what that passage is referring to. 
In Psalm 24, in verses 4 through 5, we read, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then lastly, in the, gospel, in the excuse me, epistle of James, chapter 5 and verse 12, James says there, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. In other words, when you promise to do something or you promise not to do something, let your yes be yes or your no be no and make it what you promise it to be. Now, this whole idea of covenant commitment and, and promising and swearing oaths reflects back on what we're looking at here in Malachi. I want to just consider some preliminary thoughts here as we get into this this morning. The first one relates to your Bible. And I want to encourage you to, if you have your Bible, electronic or otherwise, to go ahead and open it to Malachi chapter 2. Um, I want to encourage you to look at it in your Bible if you have one. Um, the passage displayed above me here is really best used to find where we are so that you can see it before you with your, with your scripture. It's meant to be an aid and, and not really a substitute for your Bible. And the reason we say that is because you want to be comfortable in being able to find your way through the Word of God. And whether that's on your phone or in a physical Bible in your lap, you want to get used to, to doing that. Um, Steve and I were talking uh, about his licensure examination coming up, and he's going to be examined in the English Bible here very soon. And uh, sometimes you don't always know what the reference is, but you have in your mind where it is on the page in your Bible because you're used to, to looking at it there, and so you can find it. So when, even when you can't remember the reference, you know which side of the page it's on or how far down the page it is. All those things help you to be better equipped uh, to be a witness for the Lord. Now here in Malachi chapter 2, we have the complaint. And as we saw last time, the Lord here has a complaint against his people Israel. Actually, many complaints. But this one has to do with their profaning the covenant. The covenant of their fathers. In which a pledge was made that the people in perpetuity would do all that the Lord their God commanded them. Including keeping his name holy. That's part of what they promised to do. In Exodus chapter 20, in verse 7, in the midst and the heart of the commandments, and remember those commandments were given right after these, the fathers of these people had said, we as your people will do everything you tell us to do. So they had just made that promise and entered into that covenant with the Lord that said, whatever you command us, you just tell us what to do and we'll do it. And then comes the Ten Commandments. And in the heart of that, in Exodus 20 and verse 7 for us, you find, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You, should not, you will not stand up and in public swear by his name that you're going to do something 
and then do something else or have in your heart some other intention. That's to take his name in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. These people were guilty of swearing falsely. And to swear falsely or to act falsely is something in something sworn in his name to it's to profane that name and what it suggests is that there is a certain wickedness involved in knowing that you're not going to do what you've promised you're going to do and the wickedness in it is that it reflects back on the fact that you don't think God sees and you don't think God cares and you don't think there's going to be any consequence. So in other words, I can promise to do this and I can do it in the name of God, but you know, he doesn't really see and he doesn't really care and he's not really going to hold me accountable. So yes, I can make that statement. I can be very bold and swearing in the name of God that I'll, I'll do this or I'll do that. And we know that it's become a proverbial statement among men in our society and women to say, I swear to God that something is so-and-so. And they don't really mean at all that they swear before God. In fact, sometimes that is what they say just before they lie. Because there's no sense that God is actually seeing, that God is actually going to hold them accountable in any way. They say, as Psalm 94 verse 7 says, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Now, this profaning of the covenant here in Israel occurred because of their unfaithfulness to, the, uh, to one another is the way that the Lord puts it. And we described the character of this unfaithfulness last time. And we said this, that the idea here was that the people were overpowering one another by deceit, and as a result, they were defrauding each other in all manner of things. The commentator Richard Stock says that these are those who live by breaking their covenant, duty to God and one another. And they acted in such a way as to satisfy their own lust and their own desires. And when they did, they didn't care who was wrong, who was injured. It only mattered that they ended up on top, so to speak, and got what they wanted or what they desired. So they would swear to anything, <laughs> but their intention was that in the end, they would be the ones that would profit from whatever was going on. The profaning was nothing less, as we said last time, than the hollowing out of the covenant so that the relationship could do nothing but collapse. Now, look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 11. Because now the Lord begins to become more particular. That's all leading up to this. In verse 11, the Lord says, Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. 
For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So here we have the specifics of their sin. And I want you to consider carefully the prophet's description of the matter first. As he's inspired by God to to confront the people with this sin. The first thing he says is, you have been faithless. And you might recall if you were with us last week that this word is related to the idea of pillaging. Now if you remember our referring to that last week. Stealing what you want for yourself and then burning up everything that's left so that no one has anything left of value but you. It's translated treacherously in the King James Version, and it's translated that way to reflect the underhanded way in which these actions took place. They were making promises, they were entering into agreements together, but everyone was trying to find a way to pillage that agreement to get everything they could for themselves and to leave nothing for anyone else. Trapp says that they were doing wickedly with both hands earnestly, is the way he describes what's going on here. Take their sacrificing, for example. On the one hand, what were they doing? They were keeping the most valuable sheep and bullocks for themselves. Right? They, were, they were holding them back. They, they were supposed to be what was given to the Lord. The first and the best was supposed to be given to the Lord. But they were holding that back for themselves. And on the other hand, they were bringing to God what was diseased and deformed and worthless. And all the while, they were pretending that that's what was promised and what was required. And that's the way they were behaving themselves. They were saying, Lord, here we come. It's time for worship. And we've brought you what you've asked for. Here's our lamb for sacrifice. And the lamb was deformed and diseased. And it wasn't at all what God asked for. What he asked for, they reserved to themselves. The best, the first for them. And then they gave this to God and pretended like it was a fulfillment of their promise. It was a fulfillment of the covenant. And they said, we're covenant-keeping people. Look, here we come with our sacrifices. And the worst thing was, the priests were saying, yes, you are. Yes, you are. We'll receive it as you're pretending it is. And we will offer it to God with that same false sense of pretense. Now, the thing we understand, and is obvious here, is that if they would do that to God, you can imagine what they were doing to each other. Now, the next thing it says is, you have been faithless, you have committed an abomination or a loathsome act. That is, they did something loathsome or disgusting in the eyes of God. So just think about the contrast now. They're saying, we're in covenant with Jehovah. We've agreed to worship and to serve him. 
Here we are, here we come on the great holy days and we bring our sheep and we offer them. They're diseased and deformed and they're not the firstborn. They're whatever we know we aren't going to get any money for or won't serve us or won't taste good. And we're bringing it to you and here we are worshiping you. And they're thinking this will be acceptable in Jehovah's eyes because the priests are accepting it and it'll be okay. The Lord is saying in return, what you are doing is loathsome. It is disgusting in my eyes. And it's interesting that this word, which we reserve only really for the worst things imaginable. I mean, when we use the term abominable, we we mean it's awful. We use that word only to describe what is terrible in our imagination. That's the word that God uses in the Bible to describe almost every and anything that is contrary to his revealed will. In other words, beloved, every sort of sin. That little lie that we, I think, well, it's a little lie, but who's it going to hurt? In the eyes of the one who says you shall not bear false witness, it's abominable. It is loathsome. It is disgusting to him. We devalue the offense but it's not devalued in his sight. And it's really necessary that we understand this because you will not understand the need for a redeemer unless you understand this. Sin is an abomination in his holy sight, something that cannot be overlooked or simply excused. The people who think that God in the end is just going to overlook all sin and say, oh, come on, everybody, let's all go to heaven and have a good time. They do not understand that their smallest sin is abominable in the sight of the living God. And that's why they believe that can happen. But if they understand that it is disgusting and loathsome in his sight, then they understand why they need a redeemer why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that is loathsome just cannot be overlooked or just simply excused. It has to be dealt with. It's sin that separates men and women and children from God and and from life. You may see it or at least believe that it's an inconsequential thing. You may even doubt if there's such a thing as sin. But you know what? It doesn't really matter what you think about it. What matters is what the God who made you and who will hold you accountable in death, what he thinks about it and what he says its consequences are and what he is going to do about it and what he's provided for us as a means of escaping the penalty of those sins. If it's as inconsequential as someone might believe, then why did he sacrifice himself in the person of his son to save you from it? 
I don't think any of us would believe that there are little sins we can bear ourselves. And Jesus just came to save us from the really big ones. You know, if, we, if it was just that little lie, ah, I could get by with that. I could escape death if I just told that little lie. We don't believe that because it's not true. The hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, says in the, first, in the third verse, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. In this world of hate and violence, why would anyone shut out the voice of love and mercy and at least not be curious enough to call upon the one who offers salvation and discover if the covenant promise he has made is true? Why not? He says to anyone here this morning who is unbelieving, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his promise, his covenant promise. Jesus said on the last day of the great feast, he stood up and he cried out and he said, if any man thirsts or anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why would anyone want to ignore the offer of something like that? Jesus said, all the Father gives me, this is in John 6, verse 37, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, he says in verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He is a covenant-keeping God. What he promises, he will do. And the invitation of the gospel is for you to put your trust in him towards that end. But whatever you do, whether you're here or you're listening online, if you are thinking sin is a small thing, listen to the word of God. It is loathsome in his sight. And the sins practiced by the people here are described as those things which are contrary to God's word and which alienate men and women from him as the living God. And the specific offense is related. They profaned the sanctuary. <clears throat> that is, they profaned all that is holy to the Lord. You can think of it that way. They profaned everything that was holy to the Lord. If God's will can be ignored in the most fundamental aspects of life, in favor of what we prefer. If every time those who claim to recognize his holiness do what is convenient or preferred by them, rather than what is commanded by him, what they effectively do is bore out the very core or heart of the contention that he is holy 
and they make a mockery of him and his worship. It's that simple, beloved. They, these people had no, majest, no, no eye for the majesty of the Lord. They only had the desires of their own hearts in mind. And do you see, beloved, that, that this uh, is the case every time any of those who profess to be his people do the same. Every time we have promised to follow him and his word, and turn from the instruction of that word to follow our own pleasure, for whatever reason, it eats away the truth of who he is as God. In our own eyes, in the eyes of our uh, friends and family and children, in the eyes of the world. Now, if we ask why or how this relates to the sanctuary, it's in this. Everything related to the temple and to the tabernacle was meant to communicate God's holiness. Everything there. From the exclusiveness of the incense to be burned, to the washings that the priests were supposed to go through. From the outer courts to the holy place and the holy of holies. From the sacrifices that were to be made, from the songs that were to be sung, all of it was intended to preach the holiness of God. In Exodus chapter 30, where the instruction is given concerning the incense, in verse 37, verses 37 and 38, it says this, And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use it as perfume shall be cut off from his people. It's to be for him alone. And so everything, all these things that were a part of the worship of the temple were designed to set apart the holiness of God. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 20, we go on and read this. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. You're going to come close to the Lord and you're going to make an offering to him. Everybody, including the priest, should wash before they do so, so that they don't die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Know this, through your whole generations. You don't come near in the sacrifice of the Lord without washing yourself, because God is holy. And that's what was behind it all. In Psalm 113, verse 3, it says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And I would contend, brethren, that it's even more so among us here, where we are no longer dealing with images of his holiness, but the evidence of it. Everything about it should bear testimony to his holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12, and verses 28 and 29, it says, 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's a further comment made by the prophet here, and it's that his holiness is something which the Lord loves. And what he clearly loves, these men and women clearly despised by their behavior. And they arouse his jealousy for his own name and honor, his own holiness. Now, we're going to have to come back to this next time by God's grace, and we'll pick it up here. But I just want to close with a, a few thoughts. Um, they're, they really have become what John Trapp calls swollen toads because they have entered into this sin that they've taken on. And I'll try to explain what he means by that next time more particularly because I want to take the time to, to make sure I do it right um, and make it as clear to you as I can. But as we wind down and close out, I just want you to see that the sin mentioned here is important. Believers are not to yoke themselves together with unbelievers. And this is a law found in both the Old and the New Testaments. And the reasons are so obvious that they speak for themselves. And it's illustrated by this reality. In the days of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church would not recognize marriages between Catholics and Protestants in lands where the Roman Catholic Church was the state church. But in England, which became officially Protestant, it allowed those marriages. Now, why would they forbid them in the, church, in the places they controlled and allow them in the places they didn't control? They said, why? Because our hope is that the Roman Catholic husband or wife will lead the other one back to the church and bring the children in too. In this case, they're not, we're not dealing with Roman Catholics, but we're dealing with pagans. And what they were doing was they were bringing, the, they were marrying outside of Israel, and by that they were bringing death back into the church. And that's where the offense is before the Lord. I would just close by saying this. We are bound to acknowledge that no sin is small. They're all an abomination in the eyes of God. And the Lord says that the people here are at cross purposes with him. And beloved, we don't want to be at cross purposes with our God. We don't want to be hollowing, hollowing out the testimony of who God is. You believe that he is your God. You believe that he is the true and living God. And we rest in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, but we then live as though we believe what we confess. And that's what gives substance and reality to our faith. Whether it's in our homes, or whether it's in our fellowship, or whether it's in the world at large. We are not a people who can promise before God one thing and do another. 
not with, that, not with impunity, not without accountability, because we have a living God who holds us accountable. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, please uh, bless these thoughts to our hearts this morning. Father, where we have promised one thing and done another, Lord, please forgive us for the Savior's sake. Please, Lord, please look upon him and give us that promised forgiveness. And Lord, give us the strength that you've promised to walk in the paths of righteousness for your namesake, for for the honor of your name, so that we're not daring a false witness before those we know and love who don't know you, but, Lord, a faithful one. And, Father, forgiving us, we pray that you would grant us a desire to share that message of the gospel with others. Lord, if there's anyone here who looks at sin but lightly, we pray, Lord, that they would turn their eyes away from the world's view of sin, their own view of sin, and look to your view of it, and look upon the cross and see what sin cost for the redemption of the lost, and look to Christ for peace and salvation. Grant it, Lord, by your great grace, We ask it in Jesus' name.